So I mentioned a moment ago we have been going through a series of messages. This will be the fifth and final of those messages on church. Why bother? As I said before, that might be perceived as a bit of a cynical title, or at least maybe a question that someone might ask who is really struggling with whether or not church is important at all, whether or not church is vital at all, whether church itself is something that we ought to do or something we could give or take. I mentioned this book by Josh Moody, and I read uh, a story about Brian, who was a college student who came to faith in Christ and then wanted to find a good church, but he needed to find out uh, what church is about in order to find a good one. And Josh Moody gives us a good summary here when he says, what am I looking for in a healthy church? And he says, but there's more. Maybe you could ask it this way. How can I contribute to make this church more healthy? You see, it's not just the idea of you being somewhat of a consumer and you're looking for a particular church to go to, maybe even this church, but maybe we turn the question around and we say it in this inquisitive way, what can I do to contribute to a local church which makes it wonderful and special, not just to me, but through my gifts and abilities and talents and opportunities, I'll make it pleasurable and inviting and, yes, even vital to others around me in that church. Josh Moody gives a seven-part list. He says this, number one, support your leaders. Number two, be committed in your attendance at worship services. Number three, give regularly consistently and joyfully with generosity of your money, your time, and your commitment to the work of the gospel in the church. Number four, find ways to serve in the church. Number five, find ways to tell others about the church and live a life whereby you are inviting people to Jesus and to church. Number six, forgive others quickly. Do not bear grudges. Love and have mercy. And then he says, number seven, live a life of gospel holiness, that is, pursuing Christ with all you have, loving him above all else, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Be devoted to regular Bible reading and prayer. Take care of your family spiritually if you have one, and turn your household into a place of godliness and Christ-likeness. So that church is not just one day in seven but a seven-day-a-week, 365-day-a-year living experience. With a healthy church and increasingly healthy people involved, the church, Josh Moody says, under God's grace and only by His favor, as it remains committed to Christ and His Word, will organically, gradually become more like Christ and more effective at His mission to the world. That's not just health, he says. It's life, vitality, and dynamism. It's true. That's why we've been going over this series, not just because we've had uh, another church recently merge with us to 
to form uh, three churches in one. Uh, We have emerged two and a half years ago in a recent merge, but it's all for the sake of having a vital, dynamic local church, whether you merge together or whether other people come or uh, people who see what we're doing here on the hill and they want to come to be a part of it, or maybe they are inquisitive or maybe they are cynical, whatever the case may be, we're asking ourselves the question, what is the church and why does the church matter? And what I've been telling you even as I read, for instance, the seven things that Josh Moody speaks of there, and I've read a couple of other things from others, I've talked about what others have said about the church, but I've also said, let's dig into the Scriptures and let's find what the Scripture itself says the church is and what the church is to be. And I've been giving you 20 principles about the church thus far, and we'll cover the final five this morning. And in those 25 principles, I've been giving you a key concept, usually by a descriptive sort of title about what the church is and about what the church does. And then I've been giving you some key passages that you could write down, that you could read, uh, either the ones that we're going over or the ones that we don't have time to cover. And then I've been giving you a key word, just one word from each of these principles that you can follow. And believe it or not, there are far more than we could ever cover even in a five-week series. But here are those key words. And the reason why I want to list them for you again, just the key words, not the principles again and not the passages, is because each of these words I think are somewhat memorable because they all end with the letter Y, which goes back to our title, Why Bother? Now, was that kind of creative? Okay, I see a lot of people rolling their eyes. And what I do when someone rolls their eyes at me, I just pick them right back up and roll them back to them. All right. These are key words, and they end in why, and they give us principles about the church because the church does matter, and here's why. Number one, doxology. Number two, theology. Number three, mutuality. Number four, practicality. Number five, missiology. Number six, authority. Seven, accountability. Responsibility, eight. Visibility, nine. Tangibility, ten. Spirituality, eleven. Materiality, twelve. Hostility, thirteen. Multiplicity, fourteen. Centrality, fifteen. Accessibility, sixteen. Immeasurability, seventeen. Sovereignty, eighteen. Number nineteen, generosity. Number twenty, nobility. And we come now to number 21. Let's call it mystery. Mystery. Here's what I'm going to do today. The last five in our list all have to do with this key concept that we could call eschatology. All of these have to do with eschatology. And the best way to end a series on the church is to end a series with stuff about the end. Now that's pretty creative, isn't it? Okay, bad pun number two. But what I want to do is for us to talk about some of the things that the church is or that the church needs to prepare for relative to the church's future. 
both individual believers, of course, and the church as a whole. And the first one, of course, comes with that key word, mystery. And here's the key concept or principle. The church is the mystery of the ages. The church is the mystery of the ages. Why do I say that? Well, it's because the Bible says it. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. There's a lot in the book of Ephesians about the church. And so we go back to the book of Ephesians as we have several times. And we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2 because it talks about this idea of mystery, which is our key word, mystery. Now, the first thing that I have to tell you is that when we talk about this key concept, mystery, our key term, and in this passage in Ephesians and one more in Colossians, we're not talking about a mystery novel. We're not talking about a mystery movie. When the Bible talks about the idea of mystery, it's not talking about something mysterious. It's talking about something that was heretofore never revealed until now. And the Apostle Paul says that he, as that last apostle, as it were, the 13th, the 12 who were taught directly by Jesus himself, and then Paul himself, one who he says, as it were, later born, or the last or the least of the apostles, says about himself, I've been given apostolically the mystery. Well, what is this mystery? Look at Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll see exactly what it is. Look, for instance, beginning, oh, let's say verse 11. Ephesians 2.11, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, these are the pagans. Remember, in the first century, everybody was, was uh, sort of categorized in one of two ways. You were either Jewish or you were non-Jewish. And if you were non-Jewish, Uh, You may have had a different ethnicity, you may have had a different skin color, you may have had a different language dialect, but you were all considered at that time non-Jews, and they were called Gentiles. In other words, there were believers, Jews, and unbelievers, non-Jewish people. Now, even the Jewish believers, of course, not all of them were true believers, even if they were born Jewish. Uh, You had to be a believer if you were a believer by the heart. So even if you were circumcised as a Jewish person, Jewish boy, and of course the women were included, uh, you were not holy or spiritual unless you had been circumcised from the heart. In other words, it's a spiritual matter at its core. You you can't just say, well, I was born uh, as a Jewish person, I was born in a Jewish home, and so therefore I'm a believer. Well, you you might be a believer outwardly, you might uh, do some religious things, uh, but just like we would say about people today, there might be people who come to church and they might say they're church-going, they may, may even say that they're a Christian, but they may only be one outwardly because Christianity is a matter of the heart. And so, these Jews and Gentiles in the first century, uh, whether they were just sort of outwardly in the ways that they were grown up and not inwardly spiritual, both groups had to come, according to the New Testament teaching, to Jesus Christ by faith and through repentance. They had to turn from their sin, they had to acknowledge their sin, and they had to place their faith squarely, completely, only in Jesus Christ and what he did, as we read earlier, by the blood of his cross. 
whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, and it's true even today, uh, 20 centuries later, here in the 21st century, uh, whether you are a person of a particular background, ethnicity, language, socioeconomics, whatever it is, the way of salvation is very clear no matter what background you come, rich or poor, black or white, yellow or brown, whatever it is, you and I come to Jesus Christ in one way and one way alone. And that's through faith in Jesus. Our object of faith is the Lord Jesus Christ, and we repent of our sins by acknowledging such sins, and we ask for forgiveness of those sins. And it's not what you do verbally that's the only thing. You also reach out to Christ and ask Him to transform your life now that you are confessing Him as Savior and Lord. And if you are genuine, and if in fact He is opening your eyes to the truth of the reality of your sinful condition, then when you are actually and genuinely coming to faith in Christ, you are never the same and you are progressively conformed to the image of Jesus Christ day after day after day so that you're truly circumcised from the heart. That's what it means, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Now, just like in those first century days and just like in our own There appears to be people who sometimes, because someone else is not of my ethnicity, they don't look like me, they're not in my same social strata, whether good or bad, uh, they start turning their noses up on those who are not like them, right? That's called sin. That's called unrighteousness. And they had that particularly in the first century, especially about all the Jews and what they did as they were looking to do ceremonial things before their God and what the Gentiles were doing and what they were doing in their plethora of gods that they might be serving. And because of that, and especially religiously thinking, they were not happy about what the others were doing. And they were saying, what you're doing is wrong, the way you worship is wrong, the way you have your religious ideals is wrong, and what we're doing is right, and so we're not going to have anything to do with you. In fact, we don't like you at all, so don't come around here, don't be a part of us, we'll do our thing, you'll do your thing, and if you, in fact, come around, we'll be very upset, we might even try to hurt you, and please don't come around where we are, because if you do, we're going to run you in with all of our ideas, and you shall not be us and we shall not be you. And if we were to ever come to you, you'd probably do the same thing to us. And so you better be you and we'll be us and everything will be fine. And in fact, it got so hostile that if anybody ever tried to go into the other camp, major problems resulted. Even maybe your family. And if your family had a particular tradition, a a religious persuasion, a way they grew up, And if you ever crossed those boundary markers and said, no, I want to worship this way now, then you were in for it. You might be ostracized. You might be imprisoned. You certainly will be prosecuted or persecuted, whatever the case may be, and you might even be killed. That's that's the hostility that was going on there. And somehow and in some way, this 13th apostle, the apostle Paul, was given a revelation, a revelation by Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus revealed to the Apostle Paul 
that there was going to be a new thing that had never before been constructed on the earth, and that was this, that there would be this new thing called the body. And this body would emerge, as we've looked at from Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, this body would emerge in which both Jew and Gentile would learn to worship together the same God in the same way by the Bible's teaching, and we would in fact begin not to hate one another, but to love them. No matter what they look like, no matter where they're from, no matter their background, because we're all members of the body of Jesus Christ. Look at Ephesians 2.11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, those are the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. In other words, circumcision is a, is a, is a, a rite, an R-I-T-E, that you, you do with hands. It's something that's done to the flesh. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time, Paul's talking to these Gentile people in Ephesus. They're, they're Gentiles. They're pagans. They're not Jewish. Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. These are all the things that the Jews had by the gift of God. They were a part of the nation of Israel. Uh, they were having covenants of promise that God had promised to do for them. And the Gentiles, these, these folks in Ephesus, they had no hope and they were without God in the world. They didn't know Yahweh God. They didn't know him, never met him. Some of them, because they might have been so steeped in paganism, they'd never even heard the name Yahweh. And so because of that, Paul is saying, I bring to you a mystery. What is a mystery? Well, it's not the mysteriousness that I spoke about earlier. It's this that in the plan and providence and in the decree of God from eternity past, he's going to take disparate people, people who hate one another, people who aren't liking one another, people who have great hostility to one another, and he's going to bring them together as all one in Christ. It blows one's mind. And under the banner of two distinctly different groups, who heretofore had great hostility for one another under the banner of the person, work, and glory of Jesus Christ. That's why we call this mystery. Because if God had not revealed it by way of his plan and purpose, if he'd not shown it to Paul, Paul, being a Jew himself, would have gone to the rest of the Jewish world in order to try to see them truly converted to Yahweh God, not just outwardly, but by the heart. And they would have said, we're reaching out to the lost tribes of the house of Israel to see them come in to receive all these covenants of promise, to see all of them come truly to Yahweh God, the one who created them, the one who's promised salvation to anybody who would repent and believe, and all of those other people, the pagans, the Gentiles, of whatever stripe they may be, they'll do their own thing. Let them go. And if they're cut off from God forever, let that be. And Paul was given this revelation, this mystery of the revelation that it's not to be that way. We're actually going to join Jew and Gentile together. 
Now somebody says, was, was that mystery then meaning that it never was in fact a part of any teaching of the Old Testament? And here's the answer. No. No, it was taught there. It was taught there. And it was taught there in a lot of places. You'll look in your Bible and see references to the nations, right? To the nations. And you'll see scads of Old Testament passages on the idea of the nations who will receive ultimately their salvation and it'll come through Israel's Messiah. So it's not like it was never known before as a fact. It's only that it never took its form and we never exactly knew how it would happen and the way it would happen and all of the integration of its happening until Paul was on the earth. He was called while he was even in his mother's womb and then when he was converted on that Damascus road and then when he began to go to these Gentile nations and he was proffering Jesus Christ as the only Savior of the world, the Lord of our lives, God opened the ears of so many of these pagans that they were coming to Jesus Christ every day. Now that's the mystery. The implications of it the fullness of it, the dynamic of it. I mean, even all of these these Jews, according to the book of Acts, who knew their Old Testaments very, very well. They, They knew their Old Testaments very, very well. In fact, some of those Jews, maybe even a lot of them, had even begun to memorize large, very large portions of the Old Testament. But there's a big difference between memorizing and knowing the Old Testament and putting all the pieces, parts together. And when Paul came along and he talked about this mystery and that there's no more hostility, this is what he says. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, that's the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh by what he did on the cross, the dividing wall of hostility, that's between Jew and Gentile, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create, here's the mystery, in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came, that is Jesus, and through his apostles preached peace to you who were far off, these Gentiles, talking directly to these Ephesians, and peace to those who were near, that's to the Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, and I love verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, not just to God, but to each other, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And do you know all the the infighting today in our country, to say nothing of other countries of the world, about race? And by the way, That's why I use the term ethnicity. I don't use the term race because there's only one race. I don't want to talk about races in the plural because there aren't races in the plural. There's only one race. We're all from Adam. Every single person. 
We have different ethnicities, right? Different socioeconomic backgrounds, different places where we've lived, different climates. All of those things are true. But there's only one race, multiple ethnicities to be sure, but only one race. And do you know what Paul is modeling for us here? All the way back in the New Testament, he's telling us this is like the ABCs. But no matter where you come from, no matter who you are, no matter where you've lived, no matter who brought you up, no matter how you were brought up, you and I can all be one in Christ. Doesn't matter what we look like. Doesn't matter our skin color and our financial background and our education and our social pursuits. We lay all of that at the cross. And we say this, thank God for the mystery. Thank God for the mystery. That's number 21. Number 22. Let's call it discontinuity. Discontinuity. That's our key concept. And here's our key principle. The church is not spiritual Israel. The church is not spiritual Israel. What do I mean by that? Well, remember I told you that all of these Old Testament promises were given to the Jews and also would include the nations of the world, ultimately and finally. But that doesn't mean that somehow God forever kept his promises to the nations by bringing them in and creating such sameness of ethnicities that everybody has to give up such ethnicities as though there are no more ethnicities, no more Jew and Gentile. That's not true. If you were Jewish born, you're Jewish. If you're non-Jewish born, you're non-Jewish born. And that also means that when God made his covenant promises to the nation of Israel that he created, he created a nation of Israel when there wasn't a nation of Israel, and he created it first with whom? Abraham, known as Abram at the time. In fact, Abram came out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and he created Abram, and the circumcision rite, R-I-T-E, was that sort of a boundary marker that created this race. And so every one of the boys, eight days of age, would be circumcised. Of course, it would include uh, the ladies in the, ter- in the terms of they are a part of the men, they're a part of the nation. And so this nation of Israel would be created, circumcision, and then all of their religious rites, all of their ceremonies, all of their sacrificial system, all of that would mark them out as the Jews, as a special entity in the world to bring the good news that God saves to the rest of the world. There's a problem, and the problem is when the Messiah, who was that promised one to come, in fact came into the world, according to John chapter 1, he came to his own and his own received him not. They rejected him. And there are some who believe that when that rejection came, and culminated actually in Jews using the Gentiles, the Romans in this case, to put Christ on the cross, the Messiah on the cross, that God finally and ultimately rejected such a nation as Israel in favor of the Gentiles. Now, if you're really strict on that, you would have 
almost complete continuity between the people of God without ever any difference or differentiation between Jews and Gentiles. And yet, what do you do about all those promises, especially the Old Testament? Well, look with me in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. And of course, don't have all kinds of time in this message to talk about these things. I have preached verse by verse through Romans 9, 10, and 11. In fact, the entirety of the book of Romans took me five years to do it. But if you want to listen to those, they are on our website. And you can listen to an exposition verse by verse of Romans 9, 10, and 11 because I'm going to say things that some of you are going to say, I don't know if I buy that, don't know if I agree with that, don't know if that's the right interpretation. But let me just give it to you in a very, very critical summary fashion, all right? Look at chapter 11 of the book of Romans, and we'll start maybe with verse 11. And we're trying to answer the question, is there total continuity between the Jews and the Gentiles where even their ethnicity, their background, the covenant promises of God and everything else that either makes one Jew or non-Jew, does that mean all of those things are ultimately obliterated forever and ever and a day? No. There will come a time, even though the Messiah has been presently rejected by the Jews as Jews, by the house of Israel, and you say, well, where is that? Is it just what's happening in Jerusalem today? Is it just what's happening in the Middle East today? Uh, where are these folks? Where, where are the 12 tribes of Israel? And the answer is nobody knows. Right now, nobody knows where the 12 tribes of Israel are as distinct people groups. Nobody knows. And there's a plan and purpose for that. And it is because God has a plan, and right now, praise God for you and me as Gentile folks, the plan is unfolding where at least right now there are more Gentiles who are coming to the faith than Jews by birth, Jews by uh, ethnicity. This is a time since the Jews as a people group, the nation of Israel, have been rejected by God. It looks as though they've been forever set aside, but that's only temporarily so that all the Gentiles can come in. And Romans 11 11 begins to say to us, so I ask, did they, the Jews, did they stumble in order that they might fall. That means fall forever, be forever rejected. And what's Paul's words here? By no means. No way. It's impossible. It can't happen. Like your grandmother may used to have said, perish the thought. Rather, through their trespass. What kind of trespass? Their rejection of their Messiah. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. And for what purpose, Paul? So as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass, their rejection of their Messiah, means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, that is, their innumerable salvation, how much more will their, the Jews, their full inclusion mean? Well, what does that imply? That implies that one day, There's going to be, like today, all the Gentiles coming in, a day when there will be a full inclusion of everyone to whom God will set his love upon, who are Jews by birth, by ethnicity, and who will have their own eyes and ears open, and they'll say, 
wait a minute. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Messiah. We Jews have missed it. We've rejected him. And the Bible says in the Old Testament, and they will look on him whom they have pierced. They will look on him as an only son, and they will repent of their sins by God's grace. This is what Paul is saying. This is what he's saying. Now, we could quibble about when, about how all of this is going to unfold. And you know that recently, because of my love for the book of Romans and maybe one of these days teaching it again in some context, I've picked up six brand new, heavy, thick commentaries on the book of Romans. And not a one of them agree. Not a one of them agree as to exactly how all of these pieces, parts fit together. In fact, Coming to My Mailbox, Praise God, is another book. (laughs) And in that mailbox on January 29th, I'm salivating about the very date, there's going to be a four-view book where four guys are going to have at it in the same book with one guy giving his position and the three others critiquing that position. And then the next guy gives his position and the other three critique that. And on it goes. And so you won't see me for a while. (laughs) I'm going to be in my garage looking at all of these various views to figure out where I fit. But here's the big picture. There's going to be a full inclusion and there's going to be a day when God will be pleased to bring a full and ultimate amount of Gentiles in, and then he'll turn with a bit of discontinuity, that's our key concept, and he will bring in the Jews to whom from eternity past he set his love upon so that they can come in in a massive way and on a massive amount of Jews so that all of those promises will have been perfectly and completely given to those people. What a... What a God we serve. What a God we serve. So there is still some continuity, to be sure, but there'll even be some later discontinuity. And that's why I say that the church today is not spiritual Israel as though God has completely rejected his people. He can't. He can't do that. You say, how so? Look at verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. That's, that's true of today. It was true of Paul's day, and 20 centuries later, it's still true. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until, here's the linchpin, here's the key to it all, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. In other words, God will go back to, to those who are of the house of Israel, and even quotes from the Old Testament does Paul. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob is another uh, word for Israel. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Isn't that beautiful? 
As regards the gospel, verse 28, they are enemies. That means enemies right now for your sake, for your sake, Gentiles, so that you can be saved. But as regards election, God's electing work, which starts in eternity past and it comes through into time, they, the Jews, are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. In other words, God has not in any way slipped, forgotten, or has chosen not to bless ultimately his people those to whom he will set his love upon, those Jews. Verse 29, why is that so, Paul? For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable. Don't tell me that there aren't going to be this full inclusion of of Jews in a future day. And by the way, by the way, Reformed people of the Presbyterian type and others, they agree with this. They agree with that statement. It's in Scripture. How can you not agree with it? It's there. But what's, what's all of the details mean? What do they all mean? How do they get there? What's this? What about this? Well, what about this passage? And what about not just in the book of Romans? What about in other places? And how do all the New Testament passages fit into these New Testament parallels? And what about the book of Hebrews? And what about this? And what about that? That's why they write all these books. That's why they work their way through these passages. And do you know what? If some of you aren't exactly where I am, that's okay. That's okay. I still love you. You'll find out one day. Or perhaps I'll find out one day, as I hate to admit. But the idea is we're all noble Bereans. We're all trying to figure out what the Scripture says. And... Verse 30 says, for just as you Jews at one time were disobedient to God, but now have received mercy, or excuse me, talking about the Gentiles, but now have received mercy because of their, that is Jewish, disobedience. So they too, these Jews, have now been disobedient in order by the mercy shown to you Gentiles, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience. That means both Jew and Gentile, they're all depraved. We're all wicked. We come out of the womb speaking lies. We're totally depraved so that one day God may have mercy on all. That doesn't mean all universally. It means on all of those to whom God in his electing purposes have chosen to save ultimately and finally. No wonder verse 33 says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. In other words, you can't figure God out. You can't figure all of his his covenant promises out down to the last letter as though you know with absolute perfection. He's unsearchable in his judgments. He's inscrutable in his ways. And then here comes the doxology. For who has known the mind of the Lord? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. Or who has been his counselor? No one has been God's counselor. Or who has been given a gift to him that he might be repaid? In other words, you can't outgive God. He's going to give out of his covenant promises to both Jew and Gentile that which he's purposed them to have. And no wonder, verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We should probably close now. But I've got a couple more points. <laughs> number 23, number 23, the church groans while she awaits her full redemption. The church groans while she awaits her full redemption. Now let's say, just for the sake of argument, that some of you are saying, about the last 10 minutes, I didn't understand a thing you said. 
Some of you may even say, no, it really wasn't that. It's that I don't really care. Not because I don't want to know, but because if God is so inscrutable in his ways and unsearchable in his judgments, I'll let him figure all that out. That's what some people call pan-millennialism. They believe it'll all pan out in the end. But if that's the case with you, and you say, look, I'm just concerned about me and, and several of my Christian friends and all the eschatology stuff that you're talking about and all the, the ideas of Jew and Gentile and how all this comes together. And you've even said some of these masterminds are writing all these commentaries on the book of Romans and they're all different and they, they all disagree with each other. Well, that makes my head spin. Uh, uh, it's going to be so difficult for me. If I try to figure that out, I'm going to find myself in the fetal condition under my bed uh, screaming and yelling. I don't want to figure all that out. Okay, if that's the case with you, you say, I just want to figure out about me. Well, here you are. Here's you. Here's me. We're groaning until all of this comes to pass. How are we groaning? Well, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. If you're still in Romans, look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Now, Paul's going to talk about the future, and he's going to talk about Israel, and he's going to talk about the Gentiles, and when this happens, and this happens, why that happens, or this is happening, why? Because that didn't happen, and all of that might make your your head swim, but this should not. Romans 8, look at verse 18. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You say, ah, you've piqued my interest now. I like that idea of glory. I like that idea that I'm going there. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing. The whole creation, why? Because it was subjected to this kind of futility, the futility of sin and the curse of Adam and the judgment upon that sin. And so the whole creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. For what purpose? In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's what we're waiting for. This is the eschatology of why the church matters. Why bother with church? Because as a church, we all both collectively and individually believe in our groaning that this isn't all there is. My wife and I were driving home last night after spending some time with some of our kids, and we called some friends back in Little Rock because one of their parents had just died after one year of non-smoker lung cancer. You think we can relate to that? So we called. We had a wonderful chat, and then when you press end to the phone, you have a good cry yourself. Why? Because we're groaning. We're groaning. Brother's in a wheelchair. He's hurting. He's in pain. Johnny Erickson Tata, deep pain. Others, wonderful people, loving people, gracious people. They're groaning. They're hurting. You might be hurting. It might not be a physical abnormality. It just might be just the, the groan of a world in which we're having to grapple with all kinds of sin, including especially our own sin. That's not the end. That's not the end. There is going to be, according to verse 22, for we know 
that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And here it is, my friends, verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, but for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And the passage goes on to say, and even when our patience seems to run out and we don't know how to pray as we ought, even the Holy Spirit comes alongside us and prays even with groanings too deep for words when our words run out. So, the church, the the collective body, and even individuals groan while we await our full redemption. What's, What's the key word? Immortality. Immortality. The mortal will take on immortality. I've heard Johnny Erickson Tata say, Many times, I can't wait to dance in heaven. I can't wait. Can't wait. But then she'll usually qualify it with something like this. And while I wait, I better deal with all my bad attitudes. Because we could have, we could have great empathy or at least sympathy for those who have physical challenges but we all have spiritual challenges, don't we? Every one of us, even the preacher, especially the preacher. And I wait just like you, eagerly wait the redemption of my spiritual life and my physical life, and then when they come together. And that's one of the eschatologies of the church, that you and I are waiting our full redemption. Number 24, The church warns all unbelievers of the judgment to come. The church warns all unbelievers of the judgment to come. While we're waiting, we've got a message. So you can't just wait for your full redemption, whether you're struggling and hurting now, either physically or spiritually or both. You can't just wait in a bubble You can't just wait in a cocoon. You can't just wait by yourself. We all groan together. And as we groan together about the things that we're sincerely awaiting, even the redemption of our bodies, we've got a job to do. We've got a work to do. We've got a message to communicate. Look in your Bibles at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look at the last part of verse 7. When the Lord Jesus, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7b, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. I mean, everybody thinks Jesus is meek and mild and he's all about love and there'll never be anything from Jesus or by Jesus but love. Here's the other side of the equation. In flaming fire, he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
They will suffer the punishment, verse 9, of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might or His power when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. What is, what is Paul saying to the Thessalonians? He's saying, while we are awaiting our redemption, the redemption of our bodies, while we are awaiting to be in the very presence of the Lord by our soul, by our spirit, we don't just sit and do nothing. Because there are loved ones and people in our neighborhoods and our workplaces who don't know Christ. And if, in fact, they die without Christ, one day... They too will rise to meet the Lord Jesus Christ, but it won't be for an affirmation, well done, good and faithful slave, enter into the heart or the joy of your Lord. It'll be when he comes to them in flaming fire to deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. You realize from that passage that the gospel is not simply to be believed but to be obeyed. It's a matter of obedience. And the church, while we wait for the redemption of our bodies, is in fact to warn all unbelievers of the wrath to come. What's our key concept? Finality. Finality. There will be a time in a final day when Jesus Christ, yes, that humble Lamb will come back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords with a flaming fire and his holy angels and deal out retribution, vengeance upon all of those who have spurned his lordship. You say, people are going to reject that kind of message? Well, some will, but the ones who won't are the ones who have been destined to believe from eternity past and for whom God will open their eyes so that you and I see that they see. And when they see, they believe. And when they believe, they repent. And when they repent, they'll be with us, also awaiting the redemption of their bodies. Number 25 and last. The church will reign with Christ for a thousand years on the earth and then in the new heavens and the new earth. Oh, my friends, what's the key concept here? Eternity. Eternity. If the last one was finality, yes, there's a finality to the idea of those who will be destined, who spurn the Lord Jesus for hell and judgment. But for us, for those who believe, there's not a finality in judgment, there's an eternity in joy. And do you know how? This all comes to pass. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation, the book of Revelation, the very last portion. We don't have time for us to read chapters 20, which talks about the millennial kingdom. We don't have time to talk about all of these details, but we do have this. Revelation 21 speaks about the new heavens and the new earth. And chapter 22 talks about this, and I'd like to ask you if you would, take your Bibles, everybody looking at Revelation 22, beginning in verse 6, and stand together with me as we close. This is the eternity of number 25 and our concluding principle 
on why bother with church. And as we close together and sing a song, and as we hear of new folks who are joining our church this morning and then go to our annual meeting, you'll rejoice with those who are joining with us. Revelation 22.6, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. So here's a a servant, an angel, who's speaking to John, and, and behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And John says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Now who's talking? It is the Lord Jesus himself. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you, that is to John, about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I even say today, all of you, if you don't know Jesus Christ, come, come, come and speak with me this morning, right after the service. Speak with an elder. Speak with someone here in this church. Verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. John says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen.